0: This forum is part of the City Club's Authors and Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland, Incorporated.
1: and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, April 29th and I'm Sue Cincinnatus, Interim Chief Executive Officer and Chief Financial Officer at Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry. It's my pleasure to introduce you, you to today's forum which is part of the Char- City Club's Authors and Conversations series and is also the second annual Charles R.C. Forum on Reentry. Mr. C. and his family are with us today. For 44 years, Charles R. C. worked to support and advocate for people returning to the community after incarceration. During his tenure at Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, Mr. C. expanded community reentry services and helped to establish the Innovative Care Teams Program, which trained returning citizens for positions assisting older adults living in public housing. The once controversial idea Grew into a nationally rec- recognized program, it's in Charles C's honor that we present to you today's forum on reentry, where we will highlight other nationally recognized efforts and individuals currently working in reentry. Joining us virtually from Los Angeles, California, is Ms. Susan Burton. She is the founder of A New Way of Life, a nonprofit organization which aims to help other women break the cycle of incarceration. She is also author of the award-winning book. Becoming Miss Burton, from prison to recovery to leading the fight for incarcerated women, where she shares her own experiences with addiction, incarceration, trauma, and reentry. Our panelists here in person at the City Club are Malika Kidd, who also has experienced reentry firsthand and is currently working at Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry as the program director for workforce development, a department that includes the Chopping for Change program. Chopping for Change provides work experience and culinary training for women currently incarcerated at Northeast Reintegration Center and helps them rejoin the workforce post-release. We have some of the Chopping for Change participants here today and are proud of our long-standing partnership with the City Club's Executive Chef, Adam Crawford, who also provides training for these women. Also with us is Dr. Roxanne Coe the Assistant Deputy Director at the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, Office of Reentry. During her 22 years of service with ODRC, Roxanne has served as the Correctional Wardens Assistant at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. She also has experiences as a reentry case manager, program coordinator, and victim advocates. In 2006, she was named the ODRC Employee of the Year. Today's conversation is moderated by Rachel Dissel, an investigative journalist working with the Cleveland Documenters and the Marshall Project. If you have questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Ms. Burton and our panelists to this afternoon's forum.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Wave to Miss Burton. She can see you guys. She can see the audience. Everyone give her a wave. I want you all to know that uh, here at the City Club today, we're in conversation with a woman who Michelle Alexander, the author of the new Di- Jim Crow, dubbed the Harriet Tubman of reentry, So if there's anything we can all aspire to, <laughs> it's a moniker like that. <laughs> and if you're on the fence about Dan's recommendation to get the book, I urge you to get it. If you're feeling tired in this work after More than two years of a pandemic, you will feel energized after reading her story. Um, Miss Burton, your book, (laughs) Becoming Miss Burton, knits together your life experience, your childhood that included abuse, the loss of your son, KK, and all kinds of things that primed you to better understand and confront the callousness and harm of this country's drug policies and the carceral system and particularly its effect on black women. There's a passage in the book that seems like a good place to start for today's conversation on reentry. You were about to be released from prison again, and you knew there was little chance that this time was gonna be different than others. And I'm just gonna read what it says really quickly, and then we could talk. It was like walking in the rain, determined that this time I wasn't going to get wet but still, but I still had no umbrella. So how the hell was this time gonna be any different than the last time it rained? I'm hoping you can share more with us about these moments in your life, the insights from your experiences that propelled you to create that umbrella for other women at A New Way of
3: Life. Yes, Um, I'd like to first thank Mr. C for his lifetime commitment to this area, it's um, I can only imagine 45 years of, you know, trying to help people uh, work through a maze of uh, discrimination and and hardship. And I know it's not easy because it's what I do um, uh, every day. And so I just want to thank him for his longtime commitment. And I want to thank um, uh, the the ministry, uh, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry for having me here today uh, at this City Club Forum. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm totally honored to be here. Um, And I had an opportunity to meet with the women from Chop for Change, and I was so inspired. Um, And then I want to shout out to the chef to say thank you for training them. Um, I know what it means to get a life skill, um, and, um, the hope that it gives us. So first I want to say, thank them for all of that. And, um, all of our panelists, uh, here today. So yes, um, I left prison more times than I can count on one hand with this determination to get my life together. Uh, to not go back to prison, and it was like walking in the rain, and and saying I'm not gonna get wet, but I don't have an umbrella. Uh, people say things like "pull yourself up by your bootstraps." Well, I'm barefoot. I have, boot- uh, you know, and 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 so when I did, when someone did help me. I thought how humane and productive this help is. And I questioned why hadn't someone helped me before. I wasn't a bad person though society and the criminal justice system made me feel as though I was a bad person. I was a harmed, hurt woman who had been through uh, a lifetime of trauma, violence, pain, and hardship. And all it took was someone to extend types of support and help instead of punishment uh, and being cast off to um, as if you know, my life didn't have value or I didn't have value, you know, as if I was a bad person or a wasted human. Um, So when I did get help, I committed to help other women just like me to uh, transition out of prison, find their place in the community, and build a better life. So uh, I guess what I did is I bought a few umbrellas for people. You
2: know, one of the things that you talk about in the book is having unwavering empathy in the work that you do. And it struck me that that is a contrast to the lack of empathy that you often experienced growing up and as you moved through you know, the court system, the prison system. How do you think we can continue to work to build that type of empathy and support among the people in our community and in the systems that we have so that we don't keep reverting and reverting and reverting to punishment, you know, despite all the research that shows us and tells us that that doesn't work. And as you brought up, it just not being humane.
3: Yeah it does not work. And, um, you know, as a society, um, we've sort of been trained to um, look for retribution to make someone pay. So I'm a 12 stepper. I am in the program of alcoholics anonymous. And through that program, through counseling, uh, maybe through the pain and hardship that I suffered, there opened up this reservoir of compassion and empathy. And, you know, it freed me. It made me feel free to love, to extend myself, to have patience with people, to look for the best in everybody. Um, and what i found is that by doing this as i walk through my life and as i engage with people i become more hopeful i become more resilient you know i become stronger uh both uh, uh emotionally and through my intelligence um i um you know there's a reservoir of empathy inside of all of us. If we're willing to make that emotional. So I have a little activity going on outside. (laughs) Uh, I live in, I live on a corner in Compton
0: and I love
3: my community, Uh, but there's a little activities that go on and you know, I have to continue. I I hope the ambulance gets there on time and I hope everybody's okay. And you know, it doesn't cost us anything to actually extend empathy and compassion to others, both in an emotional way. And I mean, and sometimes, you know, monetarily, you know, you say, well, I say to myself, you know, not can I afford to do it, but can I afford not to do it? What is the cost if I don't do it? I wanna make the world a better place. I wanna leave a print. And I'm sure Mr. C has extended a reservoir of compassion and empathy. That's the only way you can do this work for 45 years. And you get you get this reservoir just to send out to the world. And again, it doesn't cost us anything to have patience and tolerance and give, give a little grace. You know, we've all received grace in our lifetime. How do we send grace back out into the world is, you know, you know what I do and what I can say, it's really, really easy. It's different. It's much different from, you know, what I've been taught and what in the way the world, as a major part operates. But I can be that one, or I can lead the way to showing how effective we can be when we have patience, tolerance, and, and support people to become the best that they can be.
2: Thank you. And so we're going we're gonna to bring in some of our other fantastic panelists here. But I also want to encourage you to jump in if you have something to add on to what they say, um, or if you have your own question to ask. Okay? Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. One, sure. one thing I want to add before we go there. I was so inspired and I've been thinking about, uh, I was so inspired by the conversation with the women uh, in the CHOP for Change program. And they've been on my mind every every night I go to sleep with you all on my mind, thinking about how you use your skill set um, after your release from incarceration. And I just want to put out there and ask: uh, um, uh, Is there a bridge for the women to walk across? Do they have an umbrella to implement? the skill set that they've learned when they walk out of the prison there um, to actually you know it's like it's like like all this potential that you've cultivated for them is there a place that they can spend that potential is there a program after incarceration for them to implement their skill set
2: All right, you get the first question and I'm going to toss that one to Malika because you're going to know best what is in place for folks once they complete.
4: So we do help them with employment. Um, We try to help them as well with housing. Um, If they stay in the Cleveland area, we have more resources, but we do look into other areas of Cleveland, reaching out to ODRC to try to find other areas that, that, that can help them if they don't stay in the Cleveland area. Um, So we help them as much as we can even if they come they need help even with our licensed social workers They can still come back and speak to them if they're having issues or dealing with some of their problems Um, I'm available for them personally Um, Some of them even ask for a ride to church because they've been to the church that I'm a member of and I'll take them to church with Me take we can give them clothes We offer them clothes because we have a gently used and new clothes resource room So we offer them clothes shoes whatever they need so we try to help them as much as we can
3: Nice.
2: So I think that what Malika is saying is that she has some umbrellas and maybe what Miss Burton was saying is that if any of you all have umbrellas that you'd like to extend to folks who might need employment or other help once they complete the program, there's a place where you could do that, right? You can see Malika afterwards. She will take all the umbrellas. <laughs> um, Malika, so we're, we're hearing from Miss Burton about how her lived experience informed her work that she's carried on. Um, you also have had to persist in each step of your reentry process to get to where you are now. Um, and you've talked about that a lot, and there was uh, many roadblocks that you faced. And you told a reporter in 2020, I am a felon, I am a female, and I am African American. So I have to work three times as hard as anybody else. Can you share a little bit about some of those roadblocks you've had to get past and what kind of help you be resilient and get to where you are now?
4: So when I was first released, well, before I left um, incarceration, the um, Northeast Reintegration Center, I did a lot of work for them in there. And a lot of people came through and toured the place and somebody offered me a job. And so when I was released, I went to them for the job and they said, oh, we don't have any funding. So um, that was a roadblock. And so I was persistent and I stayed humble. And I had three different jobs, Working like five or 10 hours, not even, a part, not even equal enough to a part-time job. I actually spent more time on the bus than I did on those jobs. Mm-hmm. But I stayed humbled because it gave me work experience. I had been incarcerated for 14 years, so I didn't have that experience. So I stayed humbled and I worked on those jobs, even if they weren't even a good job to work at. They didn't know I didn't like that job. And I tried to tell them the same thing. And so when, six months after I was released, they came up with this program and they asked NERC who would they recommend to head it that has lived experience and I was um, recommended. And so once I got that job, um, I realized that I can help other people because of the issues that I dealt with coming home, even in housing. Once I got the, jo- the full-time job, I went to uh, apply for apartments. It cost a lot to get those application fees and it telling you no because of your background. Um, I was blessed on a Saturday to apply for an p- apartment, and she told me I had it. However, once I got married and my husband has a criminal background, they told me, and I tried to put him on a the lease, they told me not only could he not be on the um, the, the lease, but he could not even visit. So those are just some of the stumbling blocks that I had to deal with coming home. And then when I realized those, that made me, empower me to help those coming behind me so it won't be as hard for them as it was for me.
2: And can you, can you talk a little bit more about how the experiences that you've had prepared you to lead Chopping for Change and like the way in which you lead it and the way in which you do this work?
4: So I know how it is to be incarcerated. So I am big on their family reunification. So they have family nights. We try to do uh, Christmas parties for them and their kids. Um, even when we had the COVID and they were not allowed to come, we even got, their, we J-paid them, their email system in there and asked them what's their addresses because we still had donated gifts and stuff and we were mailing stuff to their families for their kids. So we wanted to keep them engaged um, even when we had the, the COVID pandemic going on. Even our alumni were able to come in if they, they lost their jobs at restaurants. We were able to give them care packages of food for them and their families and they came in and volunteered because they wanted to help us. So uh, I'm a big advocate for them.
2: Sounds like you have like a, a recognition of the impact of doing those those things to keep people connected to family and support when other support isn't there. Yeah. Um, so, a question for Dr. Coy: Is it? Oh, can I call you Roxanne? Am yes, I allowed? Please, okay, please. Yes. <laughs> Sounding very formal please. here. <laughs> um, I'd like to hear just a little bit about the path that that brought you to leading the office of reentry for the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, and and how. The work that you've done, kind of before that, and now, like, sh- has shaped your view on what the reentry process is, mm-hmm. and then maybe what it should be as we as it keeps evolving. Okay,
5: okay. Um, thank you. Um, Ronnie Burks is the deputy director, so I'm her assistant um, in the office of reentry. <clears throat> and I think that um, I never. I'm just going to be truthful. I never thought about reentry um, initially, early in my career. Um, And when Sue introduced me, um, working in the Office of Victim Services, one of the things I did there was implement victim-centered programming. So um, we had impact of crime programming, we had batter's intervention programming. And so going around to the institutions, um, talking with not only the uh, facilitators of the program, but the men and women who were participating in that program, in those rooms I saw, I saw trauma. I saw hurt, I saw neglect, and, I, and it really it really hit me that um, people need healing um, to be able to thrive and to, and to do well. And so it's not just about programming, it's about healing, helping a person heal holistically. And so um, from there I went to the Ohio Reformatory for Women and I saw the trauma. A diff- you know, men and women have different, um, some the same, some very different, experiences, and that just, I was kind of overwhelmed with um, what men and women have to deal with, not only during incarceration, but upon release. And so when I was asked to go to the office of reentry, I i was on board, because I thought, I can maybe make a difference um, in there. So that's thats so, how I got there. So
2: now that I've given you a promotion <laughs> <laughs> accidentally, um, <laughs> <laughs> apologies to no, the folks okay, the state. It's okay. um, <laughs> When we talk about reentry, you know, mostly, you know, we're thinking about our neighbors who are returning to communities and what Mm -hmm. support they need for stability and for success and what barriers they might face. But you mentioned to me when we were talking that you'd like to see more support for family members, for Mm -hmm. mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, spouses, children. Can you talk a little bit more about like what you would like to see in the future Mm -hmm. um, for more family support when it comes to reentry?
5: Yeah, um, and again, I've learned things um, that you know, I don't know intuitively. Um, one of the things that we realized in DRC is that we have been, we're doing better, but we haven't done well with um, giving families access, access to information and knowing what goes on and um, what's going on with their loved one. And we had a, um, a community-based forum here in Cleveland before the pandemic. And we had um, 19 family members come. And we had um, one of the, uh, we had a warden, our, our regional from the Adult Parole Authority, parole officers came. We had a lot of people there to, just so we could answer questions for families. And there was really a lull in, the, in that whole um, event. And I asked the family members, I said, um, what, what brought you here tonight? What did you wanna know? And it was silent and one of the ladies um, that was in attendance, She says, we didn't know what to expect. We've never had this opportunity before. Families have not had access to us to ask questions. And um, so that was really interesting. In that event and a couple other events, um, I had a woman say, I have never had a good experience with the ODRC. And she was not happy with me, you know? (laughs) And, um, And that's okay. And I said to her, I believe you. And that's why we're here, and I'm so glad you're here. And she said, "Well, I have to leave early. And that's okay. That's okay." You know, um, I was just glad that she came in. You know, and she stayed for the whole event. And um, afterwards, I went up to her and said, "I'm so glad you stayed. I hope this was helpful." And and um, she said, "My son yells at me. And he had done 30 years. And um, she said, he's angry. And." He yells at me, and my heart broke. My heart really broke, because um, he, he's angry, and he's not he's got a lot of stuff going on, and he's not sure how to navigate that. And mom's not sure how to navigate it. And I got to tell you guys, it hit me like a truck, mm. um, that we're not, we're not helping families. We're not helping families during incarceration. We're not helping families through the reentry process. And when I don't know. Um, you know, we, you, you can't do reentry in the institutions. It's a, it's a, it's a community, it's a community piece. And so um, we're learning, we have a director that is supportive of, of family engagement. Um, she started the Family Advisory Council, and we have two members of our Family Advisory Council here today, it was a nice surprise um, to see them. But I think we need to help families uh, understand not only the impact of incarceration, but the impact of reentry, And help the men and women coming home know what their, help them understand the impact that their incarceration had on families too, because everybody's so impacted. Um, and we really need to bring, bring those things together for people.
2: Yeah, so it's, it sounds like what you're saying is like the healing extends the healing. to mm-hmm. folks who are trying to rebuild relationships and yep. restore relationships. Yep. Malika, you sound like you have yeah. you want to say something ahead, about cause, this.
4: Because I didn't realize until months later into my sentence that my family was doing that time with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they live in Illinois, so mm. I am from Illinois. I decided to stay here after I was released. However, my mother didn't tell me until after I was released that she had to go on um, antidepressants because of my incarceration and her having to deal with all of that and deal with um, raising my son, and I didn't know that, and so they do need that Mm -hmm. to know what's Mm -hmm. going on um, and to help them with that as well. Um, My son probably needed counseling, and she did try to get him that at first, and I wish me and him had gotten counseling when I was released. I wish there was some type of therapy, and I wish there was something that I could have done inside of ODRC because when I was there, I was told when I went through intake that you, sure you don't need any drug uh, drugs because you're you got a 14 year sentence for drug trafficking I'm like I'm positive and I thought that was the only mental health thing that I can get and they never I never mm-hmm. saw them again throughout my whole sentence mm-hmm. and just because they want to pump drugs in you at that time I don't know how it is now and I didn't want that and so I wish I would have had some type of counseling and I just thought assumed that I couldn't go back again yeah.
2: I think that was a theme um, in Miss Burton's book as well. And so maybe, Malika, both you and Miss Burton, um, uh, you both know a lot about the barriers that exist. You both have done a lot of work to smooth the way for those who are coming behind them. I stole that phrase from you, Malika. <laughs> um, you know, one area that you've mentioned that needs some work, in your um, opinion, is how parole supervision works. And, and Ms. Burton, you talk about this in your book too, kind of having to keep going back to parole for a long time and there never really being any credit for all the wonderful things that, that you were doing. Um, what do you think needs to change about that part of re-entry, where there's time that's put on you when you're in the community and and what that kind of sets up in terms of really being able to re-engage in your life and getting credit for the work that you're doing? Lika, you can start and then I think Ms. Burton might have something to add in about it when you're so done.
4: My, um, Interactions with the parole office here. It was not a good one at first um, Some sensitivity training and not looping everybody who comes out in the same category um, I did everything I could to do, be positive and do everything in the society and I was uh, Asked to go out to different states to speak and I would have to go in to get a travel permit and the, uh, And I would have to wait for hours just to get this travel permit and I would hear the secretary saying, she's been waiting for a while. And I hear one of the parole officers say, oh, she can wait. Now, I'm, I was blessed to have Luther Metropolitan Ministry who has compassion for returning citizens. And so they were okay with me sitting there for two hours. But what about those um, individuals who didn't have um, a job that allowed them to sit there that long and wait for that? Um, even when I first came home, she, my parole officer told me, oh, you're from out of state, and put me on an ankle monitor. Um, I later found out that that was not in any policies. She just did that. And two weeks after I was released, I was back in the prison speaking. And they were like, why do you have this ankle monitor on? I'm like, that's what she told me. Well, they f- checked it out and they got it removed, but I didn't know any better. But what about those who, who doesn't have that temperance to not get in trouble because of what they're getting um, done? And for five years, I had to go through this. And I was a model. Person coming home, and I was doing everything right, and some of those policies need to change. If you're doing the right things, how come you can't get off early? And I had mandatory five years.
2: Miss Burton, I feel like some of those experiences are similar to ones that you shared in your in your book as well.
3: Yeah. So um, I just have to question if parole is a good um, uh, expenditure of our uh, of our resources. Um, um do we continue to have to um supervise which i call oppressed people um through parole supervision i'm i'm looking at 14 years sentence for drug traffic trafficking or conspiracy to drug trafficking that sentence is extreme uh so so my question you know, I want to question: Does is parole a good expenditure of our resources? As is 14 years a good expenditure? A good a good uh, 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 is 14 years extreme uh, to incarcerate someone for a drug charge? I had the opportunity when my book was first published to go to the women's reformatory in Ohio. And I went there with Michelle Alexander uh, and uh, did a book talk and a book signing because I felt like incarcerated women were one of the most important readers for this book so they could understand that there is life after incarceration, but you have to fight like hell for it. Uh, and uh, But it is possible. Um, there was a woman who stood up that day and she said to me, you know, I was talking about what are you gonna do when you go home? And she said, I've been incarcerated here for 45 years. I have no idea what going out of here looks like. I'm scared to death. I have nowhere to go. I have no one left and i just think i mean i was just speechless i had no response for her so does parole walk her out of there and place her in a safe uh uh environment i don't think so does parole uh um uh support you know you in real concrete ways i don't think so you go she talked about or i know so because i have women in our homes that are on parole and mainly what the parole officer does is uh, uh, collects body fluid and and has them check in whether they're working or not working or whatever you know they just spend their time with them uh, i don't think it's a good use of resources and in regards to a traveling pass We take our residents all over the country, all out of state, all, you know, to conferences. And the traveling pass reminds me of what slaves had had to have, this piece of paper that they carried on them to go into town or from one county to the next county Uh, But that's what a traveling pass represents in my mind Uh, is the same type of paper slaves had to get from their master when they traveled. And I'm just saying it real clear. That's what it feels like to me.
2: You sure are saying it clear. So we're going to take a deep breath real quick. and this Yeah, is our...
3: <laughs> I know that was pretty heavy. Yeah, that was pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, No, no, Burton. no. You know, it's exactly. This is, this is Susan Burton, you know, and this, <laughs> this is what it, what it is... makes, you know. So, this is
2: what we needed yeah. to hear. And so now we're, we're going to do something, and, and Miss Burton, you're going to participate um, in something that's very special to the City Club. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. Okay. I'm Rachel DeSalle, the moderator for today's forum on reentry. We're joined today by Ms. Susan Burton, Malika Kidd, and Dr. Roxanne Coy. We welcome questions from everyone City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via live stream at cityclub.org or radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text the questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our staff will try to work it into the program. So we're gonna start with the first question. Good afternoon.
6: So, we have our first text question. My question seeks to understand how LMM partnered with NEORC and ODRC to launch a successful program like CHOP for Change. Because I work for an organization now that wants to implement a reentry service across Ohio for youth who are incarcerated, but we have encountered challenges with some county and state agencies.
2: I feel like this is a little bit of a technical question. So Malika, why don't you take a little bit of a a, a stab at that question, but also you might have to share some information of who this person can get into contact with. So
4: before I got the job, they worked together, they collaborated with the Office of Reentry, ODRC, and then I guess they went through the logistics of it all. Um, And then they came and toured our organization to see what security measures need to be in place. So we had cameras set up. We have um, doors that have kind of an alarm, so when they go in, they, we, they won't run. We have a bathroom designated just for them, so no one else can use that bathroom. They have their own classroom. Um, they have... Um, this lime green shirts that they wear. (laughs) Um, And they are beautiful. (laughs) And um, also we have other populations of culinary programs, um, but they can't um, work together in those same classes. So we have to keep them separate.
7: Ready for my my question? Absolutely, (laughs) we're we're all waiting. (laughs) Uh, Okay, great. Mr. Burton, first let me thank you for, and I've read your book, let me thank you for your awesome witness and for what you uh, continue to do evidencing the undaunted spirit that you bring to this work. Uh, Folks across this country are indebted to you for what you do. My question is, we've been fortunate here in the greater Cleveland area across Cuyahoga County to have a pretty receptive community, individuals and institutions to to re-entry work. What would you say to a community? What should they be doing in order to aid even greater the, the reentry population? People in this room, the institutions that they represent, what can a community do to make reentry uh, a more promising and effective uh, resource?
3: Yeah. So uh, when uh, Malika was, was just talking about how they partnered with the um odrc is that right odrc mm-hmm. yeah. yeah with odrc mm-hmm. to implement this program my heart just ached because the women are treated with um the separation and disdain so to speak that you know, you can only go to this bathroom here. You have to have eyes on you at all time. Uh, You are not, you are, they are othered. Uh, Instead of being uh, allowed to uh, create this level of accountability uh, and uh, esteem, uh, a level of a trust that's built, and this this way of saying, you know, um, um, we love you, we 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 we, we respect your your uh, intent to be in this program, and and so forth. So, it kind of hurt to for me to hear how they're uh, othered in, in in this time when they're trying to build these skills, but. That is the Department of Corrections. That's what they do. Um, um, But I don't think it's the most effective way of rehabilitation and building confidence, uh, building, you know, esteem and, and what people need to feel, you know, valued. So the process is devaluing, I guess, while they're learning this skill. But what we can do in our communities is welcome people back home and extend them this level of uh, compassion, support, and opportunity. Um, A a, a small opportunity can make such such a big difference in the trajectory of someone's uh, life not only in their life, but in their children's life and in that community as a whole. So what I wanna say, what I've done since I went on the book tour with to all of the prisons, it was heartbreaking hearing women say, when I leave prison, I have nowhere to go. And I knew that that was my experience. When I left prison, I had nowhere to go. Nobody welcomed me back in. Nobody offered me anything. One of the things the guard said to me the last time I left prison, I said, I'm going, I'm getting a job. This was when I'm leaving and I'm walking in the rain and I don't have an umbrella. And he said, there's no job out there for you, Burton. The only job you'll ever have is inside of a prison. So, you know, people can extend themselves, um, you know, and and, and open up opportunities and, and make a way for others to come. What I did after I went on that tour is I created a project here housed at a new way of life called SAFE. SAFE stands for Sisterhood Alliance for Freedom and Equality. And what it seeks to do is to replicate our model on a national scale. So thus far, we're in 22 states and two countries, well, three countries, USA, Kenya, and Uganda and we are training people. And Malika, I'd love to talk to you after this. We're supporting them to open re-entry homes. We're actually giving them startup funds and resources and technical assistance, because this is wrong what we do to put all our resources and money into punishment, prison, surveillance, and suppression, and not put any resources into our communities, and and fund reentry, you know, uh, abundantly, robustly, fund the potential that, that that's inside of people, that their lives thrive. Cut them a break, cut them an opportunity. So I probably went on too too far. And I, one I, have... wait a <laughs> one other thing I need to say, I have a dear friend there in Ohio named Deanna Hoskins. She actually introduced me to you all. She runs an organization called Just Leadership that 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 uh, 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 supports the the building of leadership of formerly incarcerated people. I need to shout out to her and I need to thank her for all of the work she's done in this space too, and for inviting me to this forum.
2: Can I, <laughs> Monica? You wanted to say something?
4: Yeah, I would like to say that ODRC has their culture so the program has been going on for six years and we have not had any issues as far as escape or anything so they have that they don't have they used to come with ankle monitors on they don't have those ankle monitors on anymore um, and, and we're working in a partnership with restaurants in our a high-end restaurant group called millennial group here and now we're working to get work release where they get paid to go out so they get dropped off there so we are they are showing them some level of um, that they of confidence in them that they can go out into these restaurants and get dropped off and
3: work all day. That's great, that's great. I don't mean to be too hard, but you know I am, losing <laughs> Burton. And uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of progress that we need to make, but I'm happy to see that progress is being made.
4: It's progress being made. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, Janice Ford of the League of Women Voters, Ohio Criminal Justice Study.
1: And my question is, what part does finding housing play in the reentry puzzle? Oh, it's
4: a huge biggest. part. <laughs> it's a you know, huge yes. part.
1: Yes.
2: So I think everyone wants to answer this. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. yeah. So talk a little bit about the importance of housing in a step in the, is one of the first steps to reentry when yeah. folks leave. First.
5: Yeah, housing is um, one of our, if not the biggest obstacle um and i'm i'm trying to temper what i should say and shouldn't say but i'm gonna say it say it all here i'm gonna say it so um, i want to say world get
3: free okay okay
5: i'm gonna thank you miss burton um and and nothing against uh subsidized housing but a lot of folks want to just assembly line folks to low-income housing but men and women in the um institutions in, in in programs like chopping for a change They're becoming, they're getting certified welders, cosmetologists, culinary experts. Well, they're getting um, horticulture um, certifications. People come out and they have the ability to earn a good living wage. And so we don't have to redline people to low income housing. One of the gentlemen that we work with here in Cleveland, he says where they want me to live, I don't want to live. Where I'm allowed to live, I don't want to live. Where where I can afford to live, they won't let me. And he's living in a very nice place in somebody else's name. So we're just forcing people to stay under the radar. So we have to have we have to have landlords and 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 property developers really give people an opportunity. This um, being a box really is important. And we we were able to talk to a group of presidents of apartment associations of, throughout the state and. Um, a little bit nationally, and they told us what some of the concerns are. Um, and, and part of it is not, you know, do they know how to take care of the property? Do they have the financial means? There was a lot of things in that discussion, but um, but people are people are just not willing um, to give um, folks coming home an opportunity. So we had one a county in Ohio call, and they talked to the Office of Reentry, and they said, We have 600 jobs in this county. We need people. We need you to send them here. And I'm like, that's fine, but you don't have any landlords that will let them live there. And so if they live in the closest county, they don't have transportation to get there. We've got things. Everything is so um, it interacts. It's not just one thing for reentry. We need to address all these issues. Yes, employment. Yes, housing which I think is the biggest thing holding people back. If you're not stable, if you can't establish some stability, you're still walking in the rain without an umbrella. And so, yeah, that's, okay, I'm done. I'm going to get off my box for that.
4: (laughs) Um, Housing is definitely huge, and once I found out that my husband couldn't be in that apartment with me, um, he had a family member who was moving out of town, out of state, and gave us a condo that he had that had to be paid back taxes on um, and fixed up. So that's what we did. Um, we had a woman who went home from our program. Um, she's, we actually hired her at LMM as one of our cooks. And she was trying to find housing in that area. She re- relocated just so she wouldn't go back to the environment that she was in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the landlord said, Well, if she can get letters of recommendation from us, he will let her in. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of the landlords can do that and help them get in. So we wrote some let- letters of recommendation and she was able to get that apartment. And he seen that she was a good tenant and he's told her, um, If you have anybody else, that we can rent to them as well.
5: I want no, to share this I, real quick. Well, there, was a, there was a woman who was released from um, the Harvard Formatory for Women and was looking for housing and somebody was renting, um, I think it was like an apartment on top of their garage, and um, she called She called um, Ronnie Burks, who was the warden at ORW and now is um, the deputy director of reentry. She said, should I tell them that I'm a restored citizen? Ronnie said, absolutely, let them know. So she went and talked to the person and said, hey, I just want to tell you, well, this person is a prosecutor in one, of the, in one of the counties and he goes, I already know. And his wife said, honey, if anybody's gonna give you a chance, we're gonna be the ones to give it to you. So there are people that are willing, but it's mining them, you gotta, where are they? It's almost like finding a needle in a haystack. So there are, there are people willing to extend, um, but just we need more, we need more. Yeah,
3: and, and we're, we're actually working on uh, legislation So we ban the box on, um, on, uh, the, the, uh, job applications and, you know, how do we do that in housing? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and why this goes back to where I started the conversation. Why are we punishing people beyond their sentence and excluding them after quote, they paid their debt to society, that society continues to want to ban them and push them out. You know, right now, today, um, I can own a house, but I might not pass the background check to rent an apartment. Um, And that's just outrageous. Um, I applied for a global entry you know, I've got everything humanly, uh, beyond humanly possible. But I'm denied global entry because I have a criminal record. So, you know, it's like it goes on and on and on. And sometimes, um, sometimes, Mr. C., you just want to lay down and give up. But then the Harriet in me says, uh-uh, we're going to stand up and fight. We're going to keep moving forward.
4: Yeah, it's like a lifelong sentence, like, I'm working towards my master's degree, MBA, but I can't get life insurance.
3: Life insurance, yes. So I
4: have life insurance with my job, but I can't get personal life insurance. Um, you can't get whole life. You can probably get accidental or sometimes term, but most times you can't even get life insurance.
3: Yeah. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. It is. So, it's so good to be here in this forum with you. <laughs>
2: we, we, we have some work to do, and we also have another question.
3: All right. Hey,
6: Ms. Burton, I don't know if you remember me, remember me but it's really great to see you again. Um, my question is about a quote in your book. So, you were talking about you and Dor- Dorsey. Um, for anybody who doesn't know who Dorsey is, it was somebody she was working with who also had lived experience. Um, and you said, we speak from the world we knew. And that really stuck with me because we speak, which is present, but the world we knew, which is past tense. And we know that all of us have a story, right? And I just wanted you to speak a little to the importance of sharing one's story and also how that could help you, but also how that could help other people.
3: Yeah, there's real freedom uh, and um, you allow people to understand and know you, but there's real freedom uh, in being open, transparent, and sharing your story. Um, in the past, there's been so much shame connected to uh, people who are incarcerated, family shame, self-shame, but telling your story frees you and allows you to you know, understand just what happened. Um, and so um, Dorsey is someone that helped me along quite a bit. Uh, when I first started a new way of life, I, I just wanted to help a couple a handful of women and I thought that would be it. but Dorsey helped me expand my understanding and my and my vision and my goals um, uh, uh, with, the, with, with the new way of life and, and, and for my life period uh, and committed in a bigger way. Um so where did I see you? Uh, where do I were were you there when I went to the reformatory? No ma'am. Um so me
6: and Margie Glick, we uh kind of reached out to you about doing this whole thing. Um <laughs> we were the first ones to uh meet with you. It was my I was like super cheesy, it was over Zoom and I was like really <laughs> I was like really excited. The community engagement coordinator, I don't know if you remember, it's okay. <laughs>
3: yeah but it's important yeah okay it's important that we extend ourselves that we're open to communicate that we reach out and that we just you know um uh put arms around you know every everybody who wants to wants to grow wants to do good and wants to change it takes all of us
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Dan Malthrop. we talked before. Uh, You can't see me, but thank you so much. Um, And uh, we we have to close it out. I want to thank Rachel Desell, our moderator, and our panelists, Dr. Coy and Malika Kidd. Please give everybody a round of applause.
3: Thank you. It's been great being with you all.
0: Ms. Burton's book, Becoming Ms. Burton, From Prison to Recovery to Leading the Fight for Incarcerated Women, is uh, for sale in the lobby, thanks to our friends at a cultural exchange. I want to thank them for joining us. And our forum today was the annual Charles R.C. Forum on Reentry, which has been mentioned a few times today. Charles is present today with his wife, Deb, and they ask that we note their gratitude to all the individuals who contributed to make this forum possible, and to our partners at Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, especially Margie Glick, Marcella Brown, and Sue Cincinnatus and to everyone joining us here today, both our audience and our panelists. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. Chopping for change, yes. <laughs> Cuyahoga Community College, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries, Ohio Guidestone, Oriana House, and Towards Employment, thank you all for being with us today. Next week, we'll be at the Happy Dog in the Gordon Square District on Wednesday, May 4th in the evening for a free event about the future of democracy in Europe. Next Friday, we're back here with a Law Day celebration with our friends at the Cleveland Metro Bar Association. So, uh, and we are discussing specifically the Constitution in times of change with the Honorable Patricia Ann Blackman, former judge of the 8th District Court of Appeals, in conversation with Ohio Supreme Court Justice Melody Stewart. For our in-person audience, we have Second Dessert coming up, a reception right across the lobby. Thanks to our friends at Chopping for Change. And that brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you all so much for being a part of this today. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club Forums on Ideastream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.